Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and we'll get into all of the week's security news in just a moment with Adam Boileau and then after that we'll be hearing from this week's sponsor guest and this week we are talking with Jim Hung from Kroll. Kroll has a large and well-regarded incident response practice and uh, yeah, Jim is popping in this week to talk about how incident response, the discipline has really changed over the years. You know, it's less about rolling into an organization with a Pelican case full of hard disks for mirroring uh, these days and more about offering different levels of response. You know, you can evict and move on. You could work on detection engineering. You can work on MDR. Uh, you know, the, the incident response discipline is just different these days. That is a great chat and it is coming up after the news, which starts now. And Adam, we're going to start off this week's show with a bit of a discussion about what's going on in Google land. Uh, some big non-security uh, news this week is that the United States Department of Justice has just announced an antitrust action against uh, Google's ad business, which, you know, I think is going to be an interesting one, right? Because Google has really uh, worked to dominate that space. And there is certainly an argument to be had about whether or not uh, they've engaged in anti-competitive practices. But I guess the, the reason I wanted to talk about Google's ad ecosystem is because it seems to be peddling an awful lot of malware these days. And, um, you know, links to phishing sites and stuff. It's got really bad. Now, this is something Catalan wrote up in our newsletter last uh, last week, uh, just as we were recording the show, actually. And it's certainly become a, a, a topic of discussion in the industry of late. Have you also noticed that these days when you search for stuff like enterprise software or SaaS login pages, you're getting an awful lot of malicious ads in the, in the search responses? Yeah, certainly the the quality of search results does seem to have gone down, and you know, obviously, I try not to click on the ones that look malicious, and I'm less likely to, you know, Google the Office 365 login page than than perhaps the average person. But yeah, it definitely does feel like the results are feeling scammier, and you know, if you're trying to download a bit of software these days, like you have to pay more attention. Uh, and you know, for a while, like ten years ago or fifteen years ago, like you would be assaulted by you know bad CNET download.com links or whatever, uh, and it was bad. But you know, you kind of it got better for a while, and it does seem like we're heading back towards the bad old days where you can't just type in VLC or whatever and not end up with a trojaned, you know, malicious installer or whatever else from some scammy looking site that's uh, you know to a normal person indistinguishable from any other you know download site. Well, I mean, VLC is a good example because I believe it was last year when someone had done a malicious uh, SEO and uh, and ad buy for keywords related to VLC, which would take people to Trojan versions of it. And and the developers had to get all over Twitter and sort of, you know, kick up a huge stink before Google would actually do anything about it. Yeah, and of course, the, the irony of Google buying Mandiant and doing instant response and writing up, you know, uh, great advisories about you know, nation-state hacking activity, and then at the same time, you can't go to the front page of Google.com and, and type in the name of a bit of software and not get yourself wrecked. <laughs> a bit of a bit of a juxtaposition there, and I'm sure very frustrating. I mean, even last year, someone sent me a link to I can't remember who it is, who it was. Sorry, but someone sent me a link to like. Or, or just told me like search for, I think it was like Microsoft 365 logon or something like that. And when you searched it, the number one thing that came up, and I think this was actually organic, was some sort of mutilated GoDaddy URL. But when you clicked it, and I did like an idiot click on it, and my GoDaddy login information autofilled into the page that was there because it was something hosted off the GoDaddy domain. Like there's just so many scams, so many people doing so many different types of things using this. And I think, you know, I, I had a chat to Catalan Kimpanu uh, about this this morning. We were just uh, we were just talking about it. And he said that like it was towards the end of last year, like you really noticed it. You know what I mean? Like there's always been this sort of malicious stuff in Google search, but now it just seems like everybody is jumping on board because they've realized that Google isn't really doing much about it. So the crooks are having a parte. Yeah, it only has to work, right? And if that's the way of getting in front of users and, you know, some of the conversation has been about, you know, whether email filtering and email and, you know, scanning and, and, and so on has now become good enough that, you know, broad targeting of people is now better done by SEO scamming or keyword scamming or ad buying than it is through just spamming everybody. 
Yeah, I mean, Catalan's write-up on this was fairly balanced because what he said is, yes, that's part of it, but it's not all of it, you know? So he's got this really nice dance. It's like a fairly short post uh, where he, he just looks at some of the reasons driving this. But you wonder at what point this is going to actually turn into a problem for micro- uh, I'm sorry, for Microsoft, for the other big one, for Google, uh, because ultimately their search is worth just a gargantuan, a gargantuan amount of money. I mean, Google's revenue, which is let's face it, mostly from advertising, is gargantuan, absolutely gargantuan. And you have to wonder at what point this this sort of practice is going to uh, put some of that revenue at risk. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, having trustworthy, good quality search results is the reason Google exists. And, you know, anything that changes that, public perception of that, I mean, I know they're probably scared of, you know, Microsoft pumping billions into OpenAI to glue ChatGPT into Bing, you know, that's an existential threat for them if they, you know, if that turned into a better way of doing it. But, you know, just basic search, like Google has to be top of that in order to survive. And you'd hope that they would take this real serious. Well, you would, but it certainly appears that they haven't been. I mean, look, I'm sure there's people who work in Google who are doing, who are fighting the good fight on this, but they are not getting the resources. They are clearly not getting the resources they need from upper, upper management. Yeah, you do wonder whether they're used to that search and ad business like being so automated and having so little human kind of involvement in its day to day running that you know maybe they they maybe they don't realize maybe they're not equipped maybe I I don't know you, no you they don't the, they don't want to add friction you know yeah. that's what I suspect this is about and the problem hasn't hurt them enough until now but I just feel I just feel that right now given the DOJ antitrust action mm-hmm. and given the level of complaining <laughs> coming out of the <laughs> cybersecurity space and also the uh, software vendor space at the moment you do you know I do think perhaps this is going to turn into a bit of an issue over the next year which hopefully it does, right? Because in terms of it being that, an agenda item, I'm, I'm not yes. saying it's not an issue. It is obviously a very big issue, but let's see if it actually becomes something that yeah. people talk about at, at yeah. levels where they can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like they, you know, they need to get on top of it, much like they did with, uh, you know, the Chrome plugin store being a trash fire or the Android app stores being a trash fire. Like they, they've dealt with similar issues elsewhere in their ecosystem when it became important enough and caused enough grief. It feels like this is at that threshold now. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. Uh, meanwhile, Wired has a write-up on an ad scam. Uh, the, this is the vast flux thing. I, I, I read about this in Catalan's newsletter, but th- this is the one where they could um, basically get multi... It was malware, right? And they could actually get like four video ads to play at once in the background to monetize them and whatnot. So this is like good old-fashioned ad fraud uh, that apparently is the biggest example of ad fraud ever discovered. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Like they bought regular advertising slots and then would sub in some JavaScript that would then, as you say, load a bunch of a bunch of different ads all at once with a bunch of different app identifiers. So it looked like 17 different applications on your phone were all getting different ads when in fact it was just one ad, one ad and one app. And, you know, chews up your battery life, makes it look like you're hitting lots of advertising, they get paid uh, and, you know, presumably make pretty reasonable money because they were doing this at quite some scale. And if you're, you know, if you're loading ads at 25 times, you know, for every ad shown, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you could make some bucks. Yeah, at that sort of scale, they was they would certainly have been making some money. I mean, the ad fraud stuff's really interesting because the ad platforms themselves aren't really incentivized to fix the problem. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, you know? they're making making money on every click, so or every interaction, or whatever every page loads. So. Yeah, it only becomes yeah. a problem for them if if trust in advertising you know, on a particular platform is eroded to the degree that like you just won't do it until people start walking. But, you know, as we've just seen with the introduction of this, you know, antitrust thing, like where else are you going to go? Google owns like 80% of it. Well, exactly, yes. Uh, and well, on the other hand, like Google's, this is not Google's first ride on the antitrust rodeo, right? I mean, they had the search antitrust uh, case, which is what that, that hasn't even gone anywhere yet. Like that's still awaiting, uh, awaiting trial, and that was from what twenty twenty. So yeah. plus all the stuff the European Union and and so on and so forth. So you know those wheels move pretty slowly. Yeah, and for its part, Google said that uh, it has strict policies against invalid traffic and there was limited vast flux. That was the name of this particular operation, this ad fraud operation. There was limited vast flux exposure. Uh, on its networks. Our team thoroughly evaluated the report's findings and took prompt enforcement action. 
So there you go. <laughs> Maybe you need to scale up that sort of stuff there, guy. Uh, yeah. Something to think about. Now, Adam, uh, some good news, which we're not used to really talking about uh, on, this, on this show. Uh, I'm going to let Claire Ed from Risky Business News uh, introduce this one. The value of cryptocurrency transactions linked to criminal activity declined in 2022. Cryptocurrency transactions linked to ransomware payments, online scams, darknet markets, fraud shops, terrorist funding and CSAM and human trafficking saw a year-over-year decline compared to 2021, according to blockchain analysis company Chainalysis. Yeah, so apparently, according to Chainalysis, the transaction values uh, tied to ransomware fell from uh, $765.6 million in 2021 to $456.8 million last year, which is a decline of 40%. And a lot of people are attributing this to the fact that organizations now have actually got better at running backups, right? <laughs> and are not paying. So, So basically what they're saying is like, you know, there was still an awful lot of ransomware out there, but fewer people paying. And probably uh, that has something to do with uh, a lot of orgs having put some thought into into this as a scenario and how to recover from it. Yeah, I mean, ransomware has been front of mind for people in corporate security roles for the last couple of years because it's caused such a, you know, terrible trash fires all over the internet. And, you know, there's been a number of things that I, you know, I'm not surprised that that we're seeing a decline in overall ransom payments. And there's, you know, there's plenty of aspects, like certainly the willingness to have working backups and have at least have a plan, like have a, a playbook, have some strategies, having tabletopped it and figured out what you're going to do. Like that's uh, certainly a thing that's helping. The changes in the insurance industry, I think, is probably also another factor. Um, yeah. You know, there, you know, when insurers were willing to pay up at the drop of the hat, it was very easy for ransomware crews uh, to get those, you know, to get paid early without having to do too much work. They have to work harder for it now. Uh, there's the sanctions aspect. There's the public pressure of, you know, not paying ransoms um, because it seems like the wrong thing to do to encourage the industry. So, you know, we, we've been reacting to, you know, the terrible mess of ransomware for a while. And, and, and I'm glad that it's starting to show some fruit, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised it was down that much though, right? Like that did surprise me. Although, again, like 2021 was just a bumper year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you, you remember how it. many how yeah. many ransom stories we were running a week, right? And how many of those, you know, we didn't see follow-up or we didn't, didn't necessarily see, you know, data getting posted at the end. And it's also, you know, it's so recent that we moved from straight ransom to, you know, extortion to protect your data from being leaked as opposed to just kind of making it not available. You know, so much has happened in such a short period of time uh, and everything's moving real quick and it's nice to see the numbers going in the right direction for once. I think another reason maybe some of those, um, uh, some of that transaction volume, you know, transaction value declined in 2022, a big part of that would have been some of the regulatory actions against um, crypto exchanges like KYC and whatnot. I think that probably had a big impact as well. And that's as a result of some of these government actions. Yes, so we've certainly seen pressure on the money side of it, uh, and you know, laundering Bitcoin has become more complicated. Uh, and certainly, you know, the work of firms like Chainalysis and other people that do blockchain analysis uh, of all of the various, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies and all of the ways that they interact with each other, like it has become more difficult to move that money around and and actually get properly paid, even if someone is willing to pay the ransom. Plus, of course, the sanctions. You know, we've seen sanction actions against. Uh, you know, some of the ransomware crews themselves, as well as some of the, you know, entities that were doing, you know, helping them with the finances and the money laundering and so on and so forth. So, you know, all of that coordinated action in the different various directions that we've you know, spent the last few years talking about, you know, feels like it's starting to work. Yeah, yeah. Now, last week I mentioned that, um, you know, there was a there was an internet task force being stood up and, and, and a couple of people wrote to me and said, oh, look, are you talking about the ITF one, which is sort of like a think tank that did a uh, ransomware task force thing? No, I'm not. I'm talking about the global, uh, you know, coalition of governments who've come together to form this uh, ransomware task force. I think there's something like 37 countries involved. The initial chair of the task force is Australia. And it's a US-led thing, but Australia's the first chair of the, of the task force, and it commenced operations on Monday, Adam. Yes, uh, there's five working groups uh, inside uh, this counter-ransomware initiative. Uh, there's a resilience part led by Lithuania and India. The disruption part led by Australia has quite a bit of experience in such things. We've since, uh, since found out, yeah, you go Australia. <laughs> uh, there's another part that's heading after the finance, uh, headed by the UK and Singapore, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, 
seeing governments take this stuff seriously, like treat it as the national security issue that it has become, that's great. Seeing, you know, Australia in a pole position <laughs> there uh, to go and, uh, you know, pipe hit some people, um, that's good to see. Now, some time ago, Kevin Poulsen wrote a book called Kingpin about a guy called Max Ray Vision who came to dominate the carding scene and he, he did that in a very black hat kind of way, which would he would just hack into his competitors, steal their user database, migrate that user database onto his own site, and then burn down the competition's uh, website, leaving a note behind saying, your account is up and fully functional over at my site. This sort of thing is still going on. At, and that was, of course, you know, those are really historical events. Great book, by the way. Uh, really good one to read if anyone's uh, interested in checking that one out. Uh, Kingpin by Kevin Paulson. Um, but yeah, this sort of thing is still going on. Uh, Catalan wrote this one up for us. Kraken, uh, the, the dark web marketplace, apparently just staged a hostile takeover of Solaris, uh, which, is a, which is a rival uh, you know, dark web marketplace. People who turned up to Solaris were just greeted by a message, you know, by a redirection basically to, to Kraken. So uh, this, is a, this is a thing that's happening. <laughs> Yeah, it's it is such a classic ticketing. I'm glad you brought up the you know the old school card market uh, you know Ferraro back in the back in the old days. It's, you know, we love this stuff when the you know the black hats end up preying on each other and, and squabbling, uh, and of course you know using funny bugs to do it. Um, the post on Kraken had some details about like you know go look at the source code for this piece of trash. You know implying how they found bugs and so on uh, to bust into the Solaris market and uh, and take it over, which. Ah, it's all good fun, um, and it, yeah, I love the you know the classic black hat on black hat uh, action from the you know from the nineties IRC days, and here it is still still going on. Yeah, and apparently Solaris is closely associated with Killnet, who are the you know pro Kremlin you know DDoS people, and uh, yeah, so this is the same marketplace that last year Alex Holden. Uh, the the researcher who has you know Ukrainian roots, uh, he owned them and pinched like twenty five thousand worth of cryptocurrency and gave it to like Ukrainian charity organisations. <laughs> and then you know the thinking is that the Kraken people kind of noticed that Alex Holden was able to take over this marketplace and thought, gee, maybe we should. Um, it's not thought though that the that the politics that that politics are a factor here though because the you know the new owners, um, the the Kraken people, <laughs> are apparently also pro Kremlin. But uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just interesting seeing this stuff still going on. Like nothing really changes, does it? No, no. It's uh, and it just warms warms the cockles of my heart uh, to see <laughs> see kids doing it like you know like it was always meant to be. You know, dog eat dog world out there. Now, Jonathan Grieg over at The Record is reporting that a Republican congressman on the House Committee on Homeland Security, uh, it, you know, wants answers. Uh, Dan Bishop wants answers about how the US no-fly list was stole from a uh, airline in the United States, Commute Air, a regional airline. And uh, look, Dan, I don't know if you or your staff are listening, but I would suggest that the answer is if you're going to distribute a list like this to all of the airlines in the United States, it's going to leak eventually. So yes, uh, uh, the the hacker formerly known as Tilly Cotman, uh, who made news for hacking into a bunch of stuff uh, in the United States and calling it activism. Um, you know, Tilly Cotman has been indicted, but resides in Europe and and uh, has not been uh, extradited. I don't believe there's an extradition request uh, for her. Uh, she now goes by a different name and apparently, you know, pinched the no-fly list, which contains 1.5 million entries. A lot of those are dupes, apparently. Um, and, you know, has... I, what's, what's she done with it? She's given it to someone to pass on to researchers or something? Yeah, she seems to be making it available to researchers. I think handed it off to DDoS Secrets uh, to kind of sort out access for people who want it. Um, but yeah, uh, she also wrote up a blog post like talking through uh, the process, which was basically the Chinese showdown equivalent, find some Jenkins, you know, dig around, get file read, onwards from there, uh, eventually steal some creds and, and, and off you go into their S3 buckets. And yeah, the stuff was uh, just lying around uh, inside the airline's cloud, which... I mean, you know, kind of got hacked. Like it wasn't like they just left it in a in a world readable S three bucket. Um, yeah. You know, there was a little bit of computer hacking involved here, but nevertheless, like it does seem like your assertion that this is the kind of list that you know is floating around in so many places. I think she said she found it like in the test data in their Git. Yeah, so someone they, they someone were, says, "Oh, it's an old version of the no fly list," but you would imagine it's probably not getting updated as much as it was twenty years ago, right? So this yeah, is probably um, not. The attacker calls herself uh, Maya Arson Crime You uh, these days, not Tilly Cotman. But um, yeah, it's I I I can't see 
that this is a terribly damaging thing to leak, to be honest. Like, I, I get that there's some political benefit to this Dan Bishop guy to jump up and down and thump, you know, thump a bench and say, I demand answers. But really, it's hard to see that there would be a significant national security harm here. I guess I guess it would allow someone, if it were properly leaked, it would enable a terrorist organisation to see who's not on the list. I guess that yeah, could be bad. Could, could be handy. You know, yeah. it's kind of like having access to someone's, you know, antivirus config or, uh, you know, other detection rules. Like, it's useful for some things. Um, also, I guess, kind of glossed over underneath all of that is that, you know, she had pretty significant access to this airline. Yeah. Um, and their internal systems and so on, like really just starting from an unpatched Jenkins on the internet, which. But it's it okay, be- Adam. It's okay because it's activism. <laughs> You're allowed to hack anything you want if it's activism. Didn't you know that? No one told me. I didn't get the memo. Certainly, Teenage Me did not get that memo because that would have been handy. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just weird. I mean, I, I can understand maybe there's some sort of benefit here to giving this list to researchers, but yeah, I don't know. I just, a lot of this sort of. Hacktivism, it's, it seems that you find the access first and then you come up with the justification later, later right? Like what we used to call reverse hacktivism back in the day. Yes, yeah. I mean, that and does kind of feel like that's the case here, um, which, you know, if, if you don't go to jail for it, then I guess it works. But Yeah. I mean, again, like I understand that it's not a list that you want out there because, as I said, it might allow a terrorist organisation to see who's not on the list. But, you know, this is just one control in many. You know, I don't think you're really relying on the no-fly list to prevent airline terrorism at this point, you know, in 2023. Probably not, no. Obviously, there's a bunch of defence in depth and layered controls and all that sort of security best practice that has made airline security incidents, you know, in the type that we remember from the from the 90s and 2000s, kind of not so much a thing anymore, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're going to turn our attention a little to all of the hacks going on in the gaming world. Now, this is something that, you know, I don't, pay a whole bunch of attention right to to what happens here because there's just there's there's usually quite a lot of it if anyone wants to get some uh, you know a great little history of some of the hacking or some of the type of hacking that goes on in the um in the world of gaming check out uh, uh the darknet diaries series on the xbox underground because that's just terrific and it, and it gives you a real insight into what these communities are like right where you've got very skilled you know kids who are just obsessively trying to get access to new titles source code whatever um but there's been enough action in the gaming world and and also like if you start looking into like anti-cheat versus cheaters and stuff like some of the research that comes out of these game cheaters is like top shelf exploitation research and they don't even quite i don't think they quite even realize like how difficult what they're doing actually is right and they're just applying it to defeating anti-cheat anyway there is some interesting stuff going on in gaming this week we've got two stories to talk about uh the first one is that riot games got owned and uh the source code for league of legends got stolen as well as the source code to their legacy anti-cheat software as well and the attackers are saying give us 10 million dollars or we're going to leak it to which riot has said uh you know buzz off we're not paying Yes, that does seem like the right response. Um, and, you know, I guess we'll have to see whether it does leak and whether that leads to any particular impact for Riot and League of Legends players and so on and so forth. Um, but you are right about the, you know, that that microcosm of the gaming world of, of cheat and anti-cheat and software piracy and anti-piracy stuff uh, is, you know, such a weird microcosm. And, you know, same with, the, as you mentioned, the Xbox Underground, like hardware mod shipping and all of the various bits. It reminds me in some respects also of the, like, satellite TV piracy world where there's these just tiny communities of very, very technical hackers that don't necessarily understand that's what they're doing. Well, I mean, and that, just think of the jailbreak scene. Right, yes, where, where scene, so yes, yeah. many of those people now work for defense contractors yes. on crazy salaries because they just wanted to load their pirated apps. Yeah, and yeah. that was what was driving them. And then someone came along and said, you do realize that we can pay you a awful lot of money to do this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. And, so, and it's always fun. I mean, same with antivirus and, and the virus scene back in the, in the old days, which is my entry into the security world. And there's so many lessons to be learned from these little, like, not quite mainstream hacking communities. Uh, so it's really fun to see, you know, when they are doing crazy stuff. Now, the other one that I want to talk about a little bit more in depth is an exploit in GTA V. Now, GTA V is a nine-year-old game. GTA Six is coming... There is an exploit, a series of exploits, actually. So there was one released last year 
um, that could allow cheaters and malicious persons to do all sorts of stuff. There's a new version of that exploit out now and it's creating absolute chaos. It's a network level bug. Like I actually spoke to Catalan this morning and I asked him to explain what an attacker can do with this bug because it's it's quite a lot and Catalan's been following this closely. So here's what he said. Well, the bug initially appeared last year and a new variation appeared this year with an exploit that was initially used by game modders to create versions of the game with various features and then incorporated over the last uh, week into a cheating software. Basically, every time one of these cheaters connects to a lobby, they have the option to send network packets to other players on the lobby and basically run malicious code on their computer. It's basically a, rem- a full remote code execution bug in GDA Online. You can do basically loads of nasty stuff. Like one of the most annoying things is uh, take all of everyone's money from the server, give it to you, or uh, alter their, their game status and assign them a bad sport status in the game, which is basically someone who is uh, annoying. And f- when they connect the next time to the game, they'll be put in a special lobby with all the annoying people and the bad players and the cheaters and so on. Or uh, the big thing, you can get their accounts banned by uh, modifying their local configuration game configuration files and... When the game starts, it detects modifications and bans the account because Rockstar will think you're cheating. So there you go. I mean, this thing has been incorporated into one of like the cheat packs. And as you can imagine, it's just chaos. Now, someone actually released, this is this affects, uh, you know, the PC version. Someone released like a, a, a Windows firewall rule to block the original exploit, which also worked against this one. But they've actually now pulled down their, their rule uh, because in protest because Rockstar just hasn't patched this and hasn't really said that they're going to because it's quite an old game. So now Reddit is blowing up. You know, people have had their accounts banned. They're going nuts like everybody's really really angry and i just wonder if perhaps rockstar you know needs to get off its you know what and patch this one because oh meantime the um the person who was using this exploit in their cheat pack or whatever they've they've now stopped shipping that because i think they realized that it has potential to perhaps draw a little bit too much heat but you know this is this is a great example of a bug in a legacy application just causing chaos yeah, I mean, and straight up remote code execution over the network. Like, it's a pretty cool bug, and of course, you could use it for way more than than you know messing with people's GTA, you know, wallets or whatever stuff they've got in their account. Um, but you know, it's the great example of having a you know exploits one thing, but building it into a weaponized you know actual usable tool chain or you know point you know I don't like this person in the lobby, press a button, and, and that's uh, and, and that's gone. the thing. It's got like it, it's got so many elements of like understanding broader security stuff, right? Yes, Which yes, is, yeah. You know, which is just, you know, the bug was there, wasn't really a big deal until someone pointy clickied it and made it, you know, and weaponized it. And all of a sudden it's just chaos out there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, it's such a great example. And of course, you know, we only have to look at, um, it was the Log4Shell uh, started out as a thing that Minecraft people were using to trash other people's Minecraft servers. I think, or I think it was already like, it, I think they were just the earliest adopters of the bug. I th- I'm not sure that they found it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where where the origin was, but that was certainly how it started, was people using it, you know, to yeah. log shell commands or whatever into people's Minecraft servers and uh, and onwards from there, and then the rest of the world has to patch. So hopefully there's <laughs> no shared component from Grand Theft Auto that's, uh, you know, also in some, like, enterprise, you Yeah, know. You, did, you did raise this, like, before we got going, which is, gee, I hope this isn't the next, you know, log for yeah. shell. Right? <laughs> and the GTA, GTA so, is but. just the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, well, that's how the world ended, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Hope, hopefully someone uses, I think someone said on Twitter uh, that uh, it'll be cool to see this bug being used to like bust into, you know, someone's account and then like steal their actual car, like steal their Tesla, having gained access to their computer and, and onwards their phone and so on and so forth. Like, you know, bring it full circle. Like, we bring are it talking full circle. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, so I found that one pretty fascinating. You know, there's always some interesting stuff happening in you know games cheat anti-cheat source leak stuff like that but because it's sort of outside the sphere of the stuff that we normally talk about like it's not something that we 
you know, if we tried to keep tabs of everything that happened in gaming, like it would be, the show would be too long, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Not everything can make it. Uh, Let's just work through the section that we are calling this week the Carnival of Carnage, Adam. Um, You know, this is where we wrap up a bunch of intrusions like ransomware and whatnot. Uh, Costa Rica's Ministry of Public Works and Transport apparently is has been crippled by a ransomware attack. Uh, all of these, our, our carnival of uh, our carnage section this week is all stories from the record because they just do such a good job of uh, chronicling, you know, things going wrong out there. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a key competency uh, out there. So that was a Jonathan Grieg one. Alexander Martin reports that, and this is a bit borderline, this one, uh, Pakistan uh, authorities in Pakistan are apparently investigating whether a na- nationwide blackout that left millions without power on Monday was caused by a cyber attack. But that's based on just the energy minister telling journalists, I mean, it might be hackers. Right? <laughs> it's, it's not not the assurance that, you know, reassurance that uh, that you want from the minister. But uh, I know Pakistan's power infrastructure is, uh, uh, you know, challenging at the best of times. And, I don't think yeah. it needs a team of elite hackers to take it down, probably. Yes. I mean, and even the energy minister is at a press conference saying there's a remote chance it's hackers. I don't know. I bet he's hoping it is. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, and look, we've seen a bunch of reports uh, saying that the Royal Mail uh, in in uh, the United Kingdom is back up and running. Well, sort of, right? Like, so they're trialing workarounds. They're managing to clear some parcels that were already in its network. Last time I checked a couple of days ago, they were still telling people, maybe don't send international parcels. So this is an ongoing thing, right? Like, I don't think we can say that they have managed to restore service properly yet. I mean, this is just, the, the ramifications of this one uh, will be quite significant, I think, still. I mean, we've talked about it before, but I, I stand by it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they, I think what they said that um, they're shifting mail to international postage that doesn't require a customs declaration, which that's not the bulk of it, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and if you're an exporter in, in the UK, if you're, you know, trying to sell orders that you've uh, sold online, you know, this is super bad for business. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I guess the other, the other postal carriers perhaps are going to pick up some of the slack, but... You know, if you've already got stuff dispatched, you've already you know integrated with your postal carriers. Like that's, you know, I imagine the people who will be really struggling um, in their business because of this, and that's. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's the post for God's sake, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And I'd imagine that, like, thankfully, at least, you know, unlike Australia, you can actually drive to another country. So, you know, if you are one of those uh, companies, you can probably fill up a truck with your merchandise, drive it to France, and then mail it from there, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is something which I imagine would have, would have been an easier process pre-Brexit too. So they just can't take a trick, the Brits, <laughs> at the moment, yeah. right? Oh, dear. Uh, Yum Brands uh, had, uh, you know, so they, they own KFC, Pizza Hut, you know, a bunch of a bunch of those sort of fast food brands. Uh, Three hundred of their restaurants across the UK were cl- were shuttered by a ransomware attack. Um, so yeah, they, their technology systems were impacted in an attack. Um, <laughs> this one is noteworthy because the story is is uh, the the picture that accompanies the story is an interesting one <laughs> for a reason we'll get to in a moment. But uh, Canada's largest alcohol retailer looks like they got mage carded. Uh, John Greig wrote this one up for the record, although it's it's been written up as skimming. I'm going to nitpick with you, Jonathan, because skimming, you know, that's a word we associate with uh, POS readers being owned, not websites. And uh, it looks like what's what's happened here is they've been mage carded. Yes, that certainly is what it looked like. There was some malicious JavaScript loaded into their online store and, uh, yeah, people were having their cards uh, skimmed whilst they were shopping. Yes, yes, but uh, I would not call that skimming. As I say, I'm going to nitpick. Jonathan, we love your work, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a nitpicky man. What can I say? Now, what's interesting is there is a picture that accompanies this story about a Canadian outlet getting owned, a Canadian booze outlet getting owned. Adam, tell us where that picture is from. Uh, So the picture in the story is from my local beer store. Yeah. I, I, I opened the news list to read the read the post. And I'm like, wow, they've got a really great selection of New Zealand beer in that shop in Canada. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's my beer shop. <laughs> and it actually is the one that you go to near yeah, your so house. I, which yeah, is I, I went there yesterday and that's that's their shelves. That's their selection of beer. I, I'd recognise that in a heartbeat. <laughs> You'd recognise it anywhere. I think we just revealed <laughs> a little something about you there, Adam. But, um, <laughs> this one, look, you know, we kind of debated about whether or not to talk about uh, this one, but I think it is worth a discussion. 35,000 PayPal users had some uh, inf- tax information exposed after an attacker did, a, you know, launched a cred stuffing attack against PayPal. You know, we spoke about one last week, which was uh, cred stuffing against Norton LifeLock customers. You know, come on, big 
online brands, please get your anti-bot stuff together because this should not, you shouldn't have been able to compromise 35,000 PayPal accounts with cred stuffing. It should have been detected. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, PayPal has been around for a long ass time and you would, I mean, cred stuffing, sure we have a word for it now, but like taking people's passwords and guessing them is about as old as it gets in the hacking technique But I mean, book. you know, often in cred stuffing, they're taking, you know, they're more educated guesses these days because they're taking them from data, you know, yes. data dumps. So, but I mean, even if they guess correctly every time, that's 35,000 accounts. How many originating IPs did they have for this? You yep, know, so good. so surely there would have been detection opportunities here. I mean, you know, after maybe the first 2,000, you would hope that they'd be on top of it. Yeah, no, you would certainly think so. You'd expect at least some robust detection of this kind of thing, you know, at a place as big as PayPal. And certainly Norton, you know, Symantec, uh, you would have expected to have some of that given that they sell personal security products. But yeah, it's, it's, it's it, yeah, I'm surprised too. I mean, at what point is PayPal kind of legacy, right? Because it is, you know, I'm guessing it's primarily used for eBay stuff these days. There's so many other remittance services and stuff that charge less. And, you know, I just, it's starting to get that whiff of legacy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, agreed. I mean, I wrote the PayPal integration for the KiwiCon ticket, you know, merchandise and ticket shop, uh, you know, and that was 2000 and it was a long time ago. And, and the APIs felt dated then <laughs> and the interface felt dated and everything was super clunky. Um and then many, many, many years later, after we'd sold, you know, thousands of tickets uh, through them, they finally decided to AML me and ask for, you know, identifying information and stuff after. It's funny, you know, man. I probably spun 10 up, years. I spun <laughs> up, the way that I'm keeping track of um, some of this, these crypto AML requirements is I have had like a free, you know, an account that I never really used with like Coinbase and the KYC emails I've been getting, man, they just keep screeching at me. You've got to fill in this or you're going to lose your account and like, the, the number of accounts they're going to need to actually write off as inactive because of the KYC stuff is just, that's really going to hurt them because yeah. uh, they're going to have to write down the number of users. So they've been just screeching, please, oh, please verify yourself. Please, please, it's a KYC requirement. So yeah, they're going to have to nuke a whole bunch of non-KYC mm -hmm. accounts. Um, Samsung, apparently, uh, their internal, and this is interesting, there's a bit of revealing text in here. Some sort of internal system at Samsung's headquarters in South Korea their internal employee platform uh, experienced some sort of breach. Uh, a group called Genesis Day claimed it attacked Samsung's offices uh, because of the country's recent opening of a mission to the to NATO. Okay, whatever. Probably reverse activism here, maybe, or cover for espionage, who knows. But the group said that it hacked the internal file transfer protocol service of the Samsung group. FTP? Really? <laughs> In the year 2023? I mean, it's probably anonymous. <laughs> you know, logged in as a non-FTP and there it was lying around slash pub. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I saw that as well and I laughed. I chuckled. Someone, sensible chuckle. Someone owned gift. Samsung's Woo FTP? <laughs> <laughs> it would never happen. Did I fall into a time and space vortex? I know. Yeah. Uh, and that was, another, that was another John Grieg one there. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, there's a huge electronic health record giant named NextGen. Uh, which is also dealing with some sort of uh, uh, cyber attack because a ransomware group added them to their leak site or whatever. Uh, there's been some sort of other attack against the Kulik Energy Corporation in Canada, which has crippled the company's administrative offices. So that's a terrible one as well. So, you know, you're getting the idea here. Lots of ransomware. There was another one that shut down some municipal courts somewhere. It's just on and on it goes. Same old stuff every week, constant stream of it. So, you know, happy hunting to the, the ransomware task force people. Uh, and this one's interesting though. Another one from Greg. Uh, 100 MailChimp accounts have been accessed via some sort of social engineering attack. This is eerily similar to the last breach at MailChimp, Adam. Yes, yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, a lot of contact information. And, you know, we've seen MailChimp used to deliver, you know, emails with malicious content and so on in the past as well. So, like, it's a pretty sensible target if you, you know, you do if you're interested in using email as a distribution point. Um, but yeah, the social engineering aspect of it was a little bit vague. Like we didn't understand like if that's just cred stuffing or whether there was you know more lapsusy style you know social engineering of admins. But I mean, a hundred mail accounts doesn't sound like a admin side. So yeah, it's a little bit a little bit unclear exactly what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, email distribution is a great way. Uh, like when you understand the relationship between the recipient and the sender. 
it you know there's a lot of opportunities there. I remember yes, and yeah. this it was it was amazing to me how quiet they kept this, but it was a long time ago, like pre 2010. I'm pretty sure Salesforce got owned. Do you remember this? Yeah, Vaguely. exactly. You're doing the you're doing the try to recall it face, right? Because yeah. they they did just such a remarkable job of keeping this quiet. And what the attackers did is they stole data that enabled them to understand like who the account reps were for each individual client, and then started emailing the clients fake invoices with malicious PDFs from the correct mm. point of contact at Salesforce, right? And they owned so many big companies doing that, right? So this was a supply chain attack of sorts because Salesforce got owned. And again, it still blows my mind that they kept it this quiet because so many big companies got owned with these malicious PDFs that came from, here is your Salesforce invoice from your Salesforce contact going to the correct inbox uh, at the receiving org. And someone just went on an absolute rampage um, with that back in the day. So yeah, don't don't underestimate what this sort of access gets you because it's uh, it's often quite handy as part of something bigger. Uh, T-Mobile in the United States has been owned again. <laughs> oh dear. Yes, they got themselves Optus, which is to say that someone found an API endpoint that would return uh, you know, a bunch of customer data. Uh, someone went through that API endpoint and helped themselves to a bunch of it. And uh, yeah, Optus is... Uh, doing the usual sorts of things taken you mean real seriously. I, I mean, I know they all blur into one, but they do actually. You yeah, said sorry, Optus, T-Mobile. But I think you meant T-Mobile. I did. T-Mobile's doing the usual thing, you know, uh, taking security very seriously, offering credit monitoring, uh, submitting to a class action suit again. Um, yeah, so everything's normal as in the uh, in the telco world. It feels. Now, last week we spoke about Fortinet copping to a bunch of their customers getting owned via, you know, vulnerabilities in their products. Mandiant's got a report out looking at who was behind uh, these attacks. Looks like it was uh, Chinese cyber espionage. Yeah, no, certainly no surprise there. Uh, the backdoor or the like, the implant that was being dropped uh, was pretty sweet, though. I think Mandiant did a write up of that, and uh, you know, whoever wrote that had taken some care to like actually integrate it pretty tightly uh, with the Fortinet platform. So that's you know some good work there. Yeah, and meanwhile, the next one of these that's going to get some action is a <laughs> CVSS nine point eight in Sophos firewalls. Uh, which is like, I'm guessing they're, you know, small to medium enterprise firewalls. Um, there is a CVSS 9.8 in them and there are four and a half thousand-ish th- of versions of this out there that are still vulnerable, right? That people just haven't patched and there's a pock out, right? So I, I fully expect next week to be talking about like all these boxes getting burned down. Yeah, almost certainly, yes. Uh, you know, bugs and edge devices like that are a wonderful target for anyone who wants entry into organizations. And uh, yeah, I'm sure people have been sitting, you know, uh, and using this bug since it got disclosed. Um, I think there is automated patching if your device is set up correctly, but there's obviously still a bunch if there's 4,000 lying around, you know, on Showdown or wherever. Uh, clearly not everybody is set up that way. And, you know, bad days having your firewall compromised by the time. <laughs> now, this one, uh, I first heard about this one when uh, Catalan dropped it into Slack when it was very, very fresh. <laughs> and it was like a, oh, a sort of moment, which is there's um, these manage engine vulnerabilities that are being exploited apparently extremely widely. I think Rapid7 was the first to publish on this. Tell us about this, Adam, because this is this looks this looks pretty grim. Yeah, I mean Manage Engine is a pretty widely used component of, you know, a bunch of enterprise management platforms for dealing with, you know, device integration and, and patching and all sorts of stuff. Like it's a pretty, pretty common thing. Also their service desk product um, is pretty widely used yep. in enterprise environments. Uh, so this is like straight up pre-auth remote code execution and this like if you're running if you're a manager and shop with this stuff uh, it's usually plumbed in in a very privileged way because it's going to be interacting with your active directory or your azure id or whatever else to manage you know accounts or permissions or whatever else and so typically if you can pop it you're going to be you know one step away from from super privileged access um, this particular bug requires that uh, saml single sign-on is enabled which pretty common like yeah. that you know the stuff is meant to be used in well that's the way that's the way we do off now right is yes. channel, so yeah so i'm like it, that's not much of a prerequisite and i know you know some of my guys have used bugs and other zoho products over the years and it's just yeah it's a great place to to go and get shells and often is hanging out on the internet like not just on the corporate you know internal networks such that they exist these days so yeah juicy target um, and yeah, not unfortunately not surprised given the history of the software. 
But I mean, like people are actually doing this yes. right now. Like POC is out. People are burning down stuff with it at the moment. So yeah, that's just like, there's a lot of people getting wrecked by that one. A uh, little bit of research written up by the Daily Swig here, which is there's a, uh, a bypass bug in CloudTrail. Uh, it's been patched. Um, but yeah, basically in CloudTrail's API monitoring tool, there was, a, there was a technique you could use so that it just wouldn't log. So the guts of this bug is that um, the Identity and Access Manager, IAM, part of uh, Amazon AWS, uh, normally if you go through the published endpoints for that and make you know calls to query users or, or do whatever else you're doing, um, those get logged into, into CloudTrail, which is where all of the various AWS component logs end up, and then you can make detection decisions or whatever else based on those. It turns out that there was another endpoint that provided some like back-end APIs that were used by IAM, but that you could hit as an end user. Um, so you needed to be authorized correctly to call the APIs, but then this other interface did not result in them being logged, which given it's the identity and access management part of it, <laughs> that's super important. And it's kind of why people turn CloudTrail on. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> when we first spoke about on. this, you said CloudTrail, you had one job. One job was to log stuff and especially stuff related to identity and access management. So yeah, obviously AWS has been looking at that. Um, I think they did say that it wasn't intended that you could talk to this kind of like backend component of the IAM you know, services to do it. But yeah, not great. Yes, this next one wound up pasted into our Slack by you for my enjoyment <laughs> because you just knew that this one would warm my heart. Um, it was like a year or two ago that I posted a tweet that just said, friends don't let friends run Electron apps. And that was the whole tweet. And that wound up kicking off. It was so weird, right? Because it wound up kicking off this like week-long epic Twitter thread like involving some of the smartest people in the industry weighing in um, on it. You know, and really I, I've just... As you know, I've been a long-time critic of, of um, Electron-based apps uh, since seeing a really good research presentation uh, on it at uh, one of the conferences in Queensland. And, you know, the, this is why, like, this bug mm -hmm. is exactly mm -hmm. the sort of thing why I'm, I'm not a fan of Electron. And when I have the option to run something in a browser, you know, Spotify, Slack, uh, Zoom, whatever, always run it in the browser. Because this blog post, I mean, it starts off saying, well, here's how you can get an iframe to, you know, to display uh, in, you know, via Microsoft Teams. And here I am thinking, okay, what's the big deal? And then you keep reading and it's like, oh, yeah, it's an Electron app. So all you have to do is invoke the please do something suicidal functionality of Electron and, um, you know, it will seppuku for you and hand out shells. <laughs> pretty pretty much yes so this was a bug that uh, the researchers were going to use in prone to own vancouver but then didn't have enough time or something like that um so they dropped the bug uh i believe it is now patched um but yeah this was a, as you say like two-step process one you can send someone a, a link that ends up in teams so that's sort of a, a url handler that ends up um uh, being parsed by the team's you know javascript that lets you pull in arbitrary content and that's like a bypass of some you know allow listing functionality with a you know like putting a space in the url not working with yeah the, yeah yeah but i mean if you could do this the against the, the browser version who cares yes exactly right <laughs> who cares uh, and then that essentially leverages into like now i can run javascript inside a you know web view inside a teams instance and in the Electron version, yes, you can call off into the like plugin system where it's going to, you know, has a mechanism for essentially just calling an arbitrary operating system, you know, invoking a process, starting a new binary, whatever else, you know, start a new process. And yeah, we have straight up remote code execution uh, in Teams, which. Yep. That's bad. <laughs> I mean, in the in the non-Electron version of this, like you probably still got enough that you can then you know, talk to the rest of the Office APIs and, and, you know, you could use this for data exfil or, you know, for something else, you know, even if it wasn't Electron, but straight up remote code exists. Okay, okay, so there was a so what, right? Like, that was the thing. I was thinking this didn't really get you much without the Electron component, but this, the web bug part of this actually gets you something useful, does it? I, I think it would. I mean, that's not what they're talking about. Obviously, they were going for code execution in, in prone to own, Um but looking through it and, you know, I've spent a little bit of time in the gubbins of teams and I can, you know, like I think I think the first half of this you probably could still use for something, but it's not straight up code exec. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like that's what you want in teams. I mean, you, I mean, what organization on this planet doesn't use Microsoft's 
software stack and Teams is super common and well, and as you were explaining mm, to me, because I don't so use good. it, I don't run Windows, right? But you were saying that it's you know just really integrated into Microsoft, you know, Microsoft's whole stack now. You run Windows, it it opens automatically on your boot. It's in your system tray. It's like URI handlers are, you know, grab you know <laughs> grabbing yeah, URLs and like popping up Teams meetings everywhere, and it's just like super super integrated. Yeah, it it is hard as a you know Windows on the desktop user to avoid Electron Teams. Yeah, uh, I mean I run teams on inside the browser on Linux on the desktop, but they've actually, they've actually stopped. They used to make an electron packaged version of teams for Linux on the desktop, which I gave a try, but it just never really worked well. And the browser one worked better, but you know, anything electron makes you feel bad. And yeah, I, I mean, as you, your tweet stands, right? We don't let friends yeah. run electron apps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. All right, Adam, thank you so much for joining us this week, mate. It's been a pleasure as always, uh, always fun to chat and we'll do it again next week. Yeah, thanks very much, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time to speak with this week's sponsor guest now, Jim Hung, co-leads the Special Projects and Applied Research Team at Kroll, which is a large global risk advisory company that also happens to operate a very well-respected incident response practice. But Kroll, and indeed, you know, most of the other incident response firms these days, uh, do more than just post-incident autopsies for law firms, you know, who are, who are retained by their clients when something's gone massively wrong. So Jim joined me to talk through how working in IR has changed and how incident response is a bit of a spectrum now. Uh, the industry is changing. Here's Jim. From my perspective, the incident response like market is going through a transition state, right? We're almost at an inflection point where uh, a lot of the traditional workflows, the technologies that are coming to, to the market and then are being you know, really embraced by practitioners are starting to bridge uh, the gap, I think, between what would traditionally be called uh, full-blooded incident response. So, you know, this very high-touch, uh, you know, consulting-driven uh, ideal of, of IR versus uh, operational security, which is, I think, traditionally seen as being faster, more a little bit more efficient, you know, a little bit more uh, earlier down that, uh, that that kill chain, right? Like in terms of preventing incidents before they ever get to that really apocalyptic phase. Uh, and, and there's some really interesting sort of drivers behind that. Uh, and then Kroll being a, a, one of the larger and probably more mature consultancies around cyber and financial risk kind of has this really interesting perspective on this. So I'd love to share that with you, listeners. One way that I think we kind of got here, right, is when you think back some of the early incident response firms kind of got spun out of the forensics firms. You know, it was like this crime scene investigation approach, right? So it's like people would enter the building with bags full of discs to go and mirror things. And it was very much <laughs> like, you know, there was this sort of crossover between forensics and IR. And it's, I think increasingly people are realizing that that's maybe not the best way to use those skills as evidenced by the fact that, we're seeing more and more like of these MDR companies, which have kind of a focus on on incident response. I mean, this is kind of the the type of change that you're talking about here, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like uh, I think it's almost we're almost generations in, right, to the evolution of incident response, and I couldn't agree with you more, right? Like, in fact, you're almost telling the my, the the story of my own uh, career evolution. I've spent enough time on planes with Pelican cases full of uh, disk yeah. images and you know hard drives going to client sites. Uh, uh, you know, in my time, but then time has moved on, right? We've had the advent of uh, remote forensics and triage and comfort that's grown around those tools. Kroll, incidentally, has like a, a piece of that heritage, right, with our tool Cape, uh, which was kind of a, in my opinion, like this this idealized view of being able to do these targeted collections. But then the world of EDR has also come along, which allows you to collect a lot of that same information contemporaneously. And you'd hear, but like, you're not taking narrative. that same crime scene forensics approach of actually mirroring all the discs and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I mean. Like it's 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 gone. You know, it just feels like so much of the history there is tied to that forensics approach. Yeah, in, in many ways, right? It's not just the procedural uh, and like process-driven component of it that has grown out of that. It's also the mindset, right? Like a lot of uh, yeah. true, uh, like a uh, forensic, like for, uh, lethal forensicators uh, will, will will swear by like their stack of tools, and it's very hard to change those like hearts and minds to use tools that are you know perhaps a lot more lightweight or not necessarily designed for the the same kind of uh, like rigor uh, or uh, uh, completeness as those traditional techniques. The challenge is though 
incident response has is evolved to have much more clear KPIs around things like the total impact and cost of breaches. And you can't move that needle as clearly when you're you know it's taking you two or three weeks to arrive at answers the traditional way. You have to be able to acknowledge that you know these more uh, agile uh, technologies have, have shifted the game. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that the the pressures that created those mindsets before things like the impact of litigation and regulatory like insight and things like that into data breaches has gone away because it hasn't. If it, if anything, it's gotten more comprehensive. And so what? If, from but it my is, but it is kind we, of ironic, isn't it, that we called this field incident response even in the days where there wasn't really actually much of a response. <laughs> like you know, the response yeah. was the the collection of information and the writing of a report. It wasn't actually you know the response didn't involve actually doing anything about yeah, the, the intrusion metaphor, really. The, the metaphor I always use uh, around that is uh, it's like we got content with being essentially like um, uh, bomb, um, you know, to terrorist uh, uh, attack, like investigators coming in after a bomb has gone off. And we never got comfortable with the idea that we should be preventing it. You can see actually that a lot of the, the efforts after major terrorist attacks shifted to ones where the process itself, the process of identifying those attacks and the intelligence wrapped around them and things like that became the primary currency of the way those issues were deal, dealt with in the past. Um, you know, uh, I was talking, so Kroll has a, a great deal of uh, heritage in the FBI and many of our team yeah. are, are ex-agents. And so one of the conversations I was having just this week was with someone who was talking about the, a lot of the effort that was undertaken in the Bureau uh, following uh, one of the terrorist bombings in the US in, 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 in the last uh, decade or so. And uh, a huge amount of that uh, conversation was around how they took a step back and looked at these processes that were incredibly hard to automate with the current level of thinking. But when they sliced and diced and thought about some of those problems a little differently, they were able to scale that up to the site to the size where you could actually imagine like a nation state criminal or, you know, like anti-terrorist organization could meaningfully intervene in time. I think we're seeing a very similar pattern in cybersecurity, right, in the past few years. But we're not all the way there. But is that it's is that just manifesting itself, do you think, in terms of uh you know, findings in IR reports that are much more about like adjustments people can make to their processes? Or do you think that the entire industry is going to pivot more towards this sort of MDR model? And I know, I know that's something that Kroll's jumping into, right? And I think in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense, right? For the, for the IR companies to be doing, doing more of this sort of um, MDR stuff. But you do, you know, you do suspect there's always going to be a fairly substantial market for the, for the crash investigators, right? Like that's not going to go exactly. away. Yeah, like I, th I think one of the key things that I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from my conversation today with is the idea that like any one of those uh, like perspectives on the industry are wrong because they don't. They're driven by very real, very tangible like uh, consequences for real world uh, considerations around security, right? Like the, some firms, so some victims of, of cyber attacks have uh, an outsized uh, uh, prioritization around things like regulatory like uh, uh, issues uh, or, or, you know, the, 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 the compliance frameworks that they exist in. That's just how the world is on the other side there'll be people who just want to move fast and then business continuity is a much more uh, uh and cost effectiveness is a much more pressing concern but your question is kind of an interesting one right because you, you maybe even subconsciously frame that as like a a um binary choice right like a, it's mutually exclusive that you could either do it the old-fashioned way or do it the, the the new sexy way and i think one of the things that I, i've been ruminating on and, and reflecting on recently is is the idea that actually we need a hybridized approach, like one that actually doesn't force you to make a uh, a hard choice between the two uh, extremes of you know of those those kinds of solutions, but instead adopt and, and, and prioritize value models which fill that gap in between. Uh, and I think there's a lot of inspirational projects and things like that going on in the industry that we could look to as ways to to, to reach across the aisle and and marry. To your point, like the qualitative value out of incident response teams with those with those who are most pressingly charged with operationalizing that information. I mean, do you think this uh, this pivot towards more incident responders working in sort of MDR firms is because that's like that's kind of the most obvious way to to sort of integrate this thing better into into uh, to operationalize it, right? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it is. Sorry, it's I mean, early uh, when we're recording this, which is why I'm not my normal eloquent self, by the way. But go on, Jim. No, but you're exactly right. I, I think uh, it, it absolutely is, because, but for, for a few reasons, right? Like, one, uh, naturally, it's easier to integrate with things that are in one 
uh, control plane, right? Like you, you, you can control your SOC process, you can control your technology stack, and you can integrate things that way naturally. But then beyond that, though, I think there's a, a, a there's the factor of selection bias, right? Like um, this is something that we introspected on Crawl uh, uh, when we were looking at the design of our SOC and uh, and our response ops team, who focus on dealing with every incident response that Crawl handles will attach analysts from our uh, response ops team, which is a, a like a dynamic like threat hunt work methodology uh, following a group who solely get exposed to a lot of real world tradecraft in thousands of uh, IRs a year. And so when they bring that work to their involvement in our detection engineering pipeline, for instance, or in building out and, and refining SOC process, there's an extremely direct uh, uh, feedback loop from all of the cases that we see and the real real world attacker you know behaviors that are expressed in in, in, the, in the truest form, right? Like in the middle of these depthful IRs that has a continuity down to our end customers. So one of the things we wanted to recognize there, and, and I really amplify with our internal processes, was with ways that we could make that consistent, make that, um, uh, you know, incredibly performant and measurable, and like recognize that actually those are the kind of things that mean you can take that rarefied, hard to maintain, probably quite expensive, uh, full depth, uh, uh, you know, full fat incident response, and then start to bring that value down the chain to those people who are doing it day in day out you know, on, on a more managed service basis like you said mdr services and, yeah so i mean uh, i guess it's like mdr is a good way to close the loop but it's not the only way that incident responders can be useful this whole thing incident responder says we're good and can be used in many ways right <laughs> <laughs> it is i mean like uh, and you know we can well, one of the ways that uh, like i i i really wanted to call out was um you know it kind of splits into two uh, uh, categories for me, like on one side is this op process and operational side, right? We see uh, lots of threat actor behavior and so uh, we, we can just spot it more easily next time. But for me, I, I like to look at a project like uh, Sigma, uh, you know, Florian Roth's project uh, and, and the community wrapped around that, that do a lot to do things like codify in quite deep terms these kind of behaviors and then immediately make them operationalizable in tons of different ways. So if you're running like a yeah. SIM stack or lots of different security products, you can use that insight directly if you bake that but, I mean, into integrate, your integrating process. ir integrating ir with with detection engineering like it's always made so much sense because the people doing the incident response are always going to find stuff that was previously just not set up for detection right like that's you know it's always always made a lot of sense and you know regular listeners would know i'm a huge fan of um like alpha sock right which is as, as far as i know still small uh company based out of the uk run by a former head of incident response at ncc group chris mcnab who just basically turned, you know, all of those domain analytics he would do on incident response jobs, just turned that into a DNS filtering service. And it, it, it works really well, you know? So I've always, I've always felt like there's, there's, you know, incident responders have had a lot more to offer us than just turning up with Pelican cases full of disks. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, to, to me, it's, it's really a reflection again on that kind of systems engineering like perspective on it, right? Like I, yeah. uh, Troy Defty from Google, uh, Google Section Engineering Manager, did a great talk at B Size London um, a little while ago uh, on on the processes there in terms of how they pipeline their their work on discovery, threat hunting, and then ultimately into detection engineering. And really, the key word is scale, right? Like there, they have to be able to operationalize those things very quickly with a with an extreme economy of effort. Well, that's really the same for, for the rest of us, right? And and like I know there'll be folks listening to this who are like in-house IR teams where they maybe hopefully don't see many uh, incident responses a year. And it can be hard to keep some of those skills sharp and really see the value in some of those processes. But certainly those of us who see thousands a year can recognize that actually there's a lot of um, awkwardness in the way that a lot of those processes work today really across the board. And so it's really incumbent upon us both as experts and incident responders and as well as operational teams and, and you know for intelligence analysts and what have you to really speak the same language when it comes to uh sharing those insights and being able to use them and, and really because in my mind there's no difference in in the way that we, we use that uh kind of information it really just shifts on who's responsible for what during like the incident life cycle i've known a few people who've worked on detection engineering at google and it's it's amazing isn't it because they get to build their own stuff. <laughs> you know? They get to I say, well, we're going to develop this whole new tool that we're going to deploy at Google scale across the entire organization. And we're just going to hire all of these engineers to build it to our spec. And it's, you just think, wow, like, wouldn't it be nice if we all had that?
Yeah, I, I do. And actually, like that kind of one of the things I was going to mention in terms of like crossing that aisle is uh, on the technology side would be tools like Velociraptor, right? The, the, those who uh, uh, haven't seen Velociraptor, that was the kind of uh, spiritual successor to Gur. Uh, Mike Cohen left Google. Uh, he was one of the primary author of Gur, and he went uh, formed his own company. Now it's part of Rapid Seven. But that that pro that tool is incredibly interesting, and it interplays really interestingly with with Kroll's own history because one of the early uh, insights that Mike had when he was building this was to uh, create a repository of the Cape files collection, like configuration files that we use it for Cape. Uh, and then allow you to use them inside Velociraptor. So it meant that it lowered the barrier to entry for a huge number of uh, incident responders who were kind of used to uh, 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 like a particular, more traditional workflow. And they could potentially use these tools coming out of these like Google scale, like te technology platforms. I just, yeah, I just want to say, Gur, that's a name I haven't heard in years. <laughs> Possibly for good reason, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was ahead of its time, right? Like you can see why in 2023, no one would be using it. But geez, I remember sitting through a presentation about uh, this is Google's internally developed uh, incident response thingy, which was which was really which was really impressive back in the day um, for, for what it was. You could do a lot with it. But yeah, as I say, haven't heard that name in years. Jim Hung, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was a really interesting conversation. Uh, really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll chat to you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Jim Hung of Kroll there. That's K-R-O-L-L. You know, a large company that hasn't traditionally spent much on marketing its cyber services. So there's every chance that you haven't actually heard of them before. I hadn't until recently, until last year. Uh, but when I asked around, you know, everyone said, Take them on as a sponsor. Their IR practice is really good. So there you go. Uh, anyway, that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.